So that's kind of where I see like the main advantage of Bayesian techniques and how I've used them in my day-to-day -day job when I do, um, is that kind of the output from a Bayesian model is just basically a list of credible parameter values. So rather than say like, here's the mean or the confidence interval around it, it just gives you a whole bunch of credible means and eat all of them equally valid. It's nice to be able to make make an inference about some, some data set and then propagate the uncertainty throughout any additional calculations that I want to do. That's that's the main reason why I use it. Um, the, the secondary reason, of course, that people talk a lot more about is like the priors. So yeah. um, you know, a piece of that analysis would be assigning prior probabilities to each of those parameter estimates. Welcome back to Critical Talks. Today we have a really cool topic to chat about, which might sound familiar to some folks, but for a lot of us, it is uncharted territory, Bayesian statistics. My guest on the show is Riley King, and we will be exchanging thoughts and kick around some ideas on the application of Bayesian statistics in medical device design and development. Riley is a thought leader in the medical device design and development world. He holds a bachelor's in materials engineering from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California, has worked in class three medical device R&D for over 14 years, primarily focusing on implant design for stents, stent grafts, and heart valve frames. He currently has four patents awarded and five pending. Riley has also worked as a functional manager in quality, leading a test methods group within design assurance, an experience of his that we'll also talk about. Are you ready? Let's go. This is the Critical Talks podcast with Gabor Sabu. Thought exchange about experiences, lessons from the past, and trends towards the future of the quality profession. Here with me, I have Riley King. Hi, Riley. How are you? Hey, Gabor. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Good, good. Thank you so much for uh, for being uh, on this call today. I'm I'm simply stoked to have this chat with you. I know we've uh, we've talked a couple of times before and and uh, in in preparing for this for this uh, interview, but uh, I'm really really excited because I I think we have a lot of cool stuff in store for for our audience. So uh, before we get in, in in the thick of it, where in the world are you? So I am in Sonoma County, California. For those of you that don't know, that's about an hour north of San Francisco, um, an hour or half an hour east of the coast and a little bit west of wine country. So it's uh, pretty nice up here. Oh, it is. It is beautiful up there. How's the weather these days? It's been really nice, actually. Uh, we had about a month of just like 60s uh, after the, the nasty winter. So um, it's great right now. And uh, if I wasn't here with you, I'd be outside. Okay. All right. Let's make this interview short then. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No, no. The reason I'm here is because I'd rather be here. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Great, great. Oh, by the way, I, I love the name. I, I was just uh, kind of practicing uh, uh, your name before the interview to make sure that I pronounced it right and everything. I'm like, yeah, Mr. Riley King. That sounds so cool to me. Do you get ever get that? Uh, no, not so much that, but um, I've noticed that there's there's actually a lot more uh, female Rileys uh, being born these days. I checked oh, okay. my name on the, you know the name rank thing, but I think there's more Riley like pets than than people total. So uh, you'll see a lot of like Riley dogs around. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know if it's a uh, popular or what, but uh, that's me. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so so um, you're in the medical device industry right now, right? I think before we get into you know the specific topic, Bayesian statistics and uh, the application of Bayesian statistics in medical device design and development, um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into medical device, I know we have some experience in, uh, in, in quality as well. So if you could tell, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So I got into medical device immediately after college. Um, I, I took a job up here with a, a small startup. Um, that company had some technology for novel coatings related to drug-eluting stents, which were still pretty new at the time. Um, and they, they brought me on, and, and I was very fortunate that they gave me an opportunity to basically be the, the stent design person. 
So that's that's kind of unheard of, but um, they, they trusted me. And I got a bunch of hands-on experience right out of college with not only stent design, but um, you know, manufacturing technology. So laser cutting, electro polishing, um, passivating, like uh, media blasting, all, all the different technologies that you expect for um, whether it's just a balloon expandable stents, which we had at the time, or, or even like night null based technologies. Um, so I did that for a while and also got some good exposure to test methods. That was kind of my first experience with really developing test methods from scratch and kind of trying to understand how they relate to different um, guidance documents and standards. Um, but that company was sort of, uh, it was small, and it was kind of on a downturn. So um, I, I made a jump over to a different company called Trivascular. Uh, mm -hmm. about three years after my first job. And uh, that was my first experience with Nitinol. So I uh, had a chance to really work on uh, AAA devices. So these would be stent grafts that you use for treating abdominal aortic aneurysms, which are kind of like a, a bulging of the aorta that happens kind of down by your kidneys. Um, and I started there as a test engineer. So I was, I was in the R&D group again, but um, doing more like really complex test development. So this would be a lot of the different like durability tests. Um, so axial fatigue, pulsatile fatigue, dilatation fatigue, um, basically all, all the things where you're trying to understand, uh, you know, how would the device be challenged in a, in a person's anatomy? And how would you, um, you know, make a, a determination about the reliability of that product over time? Um, so that was amazing. Got a lot of, again, hands-on experience, really great um, you know, failure investigation experience because anytime something breaks, it's usually a big deal and you have to, you know, figure out what are the proper tools and techniques to understand what really happened there. Was it a, a test artifact or a design problem? Um, that, so that was amazing, but um, I wanted to get kind of more back to the design side like I was before. So um, I moved to a different position in the same company that was more um, on the R&D design type of work. And mm -hmm. um, they, they had an opening there for, like, this wasn't my official title, but my my sort of subject matter expertise became more, more on like the, the textiles. So with a stent graft, you have both a, a nitinol frame and you think of it like fabric. In our case, it was PTFE, um, but I did a lot of work on designing processes and technologies related to um, PTFE sintering, lamination, things like that, really, really process focused. Um, and so stuck around there for a while. We got, we got acquired by a different company called Endologics, did some different sort of exploratory R&D stuff there. Um, and then I wanted to kind of explore management. So, you know, what is it like to build, build a team, lead a team, um, you know, kind of mentor different, uh, more junior engineers, which I didn't really have a chance to do much at um, endo, Endologics and Trivascular. So I jumped over to uh, Medtronic, which is, our, you know, most people know Medtronic, a big company here. Uh, our cardiovascular division is based here in, uh, in Santa Rosa. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of a natural progression. Um, and I, what I was a lot of the, the test method development and kind of trying to understand the data that comes from that, understand the uncertainty about the things you're trying to say. Um, and I thought that would be kind of a natural transition into leading sort of a, a pre-market design assurance group that was at, at Medtronic. Um, so did that for a while, but then uh, of course I got the itch to get back into design. Um, so just about two years ago, I jumped back into um, design, but this would be in structural heart. So so now I'm working on um, different valve replacement technologies for the different valves in the heart. Okay, yeah, that's you know that's that's a fascinating uh, fascinating background, and 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 also the fact that you've been able to work with all these really awesome technologies, different materials. I think medical dev device R and D, especially class three, so implantables, mm -hmm. you get exposure to a lot of really cool stuff. Right. Yeah. And uh, and also I, I understand, you know, I work with R&D a lot yeah. and um, many people don't really think about how much stuff goes into like designing a device like that. Right. Because yeah. you plan for it to stay in the patient. Right. For a long yeah. time. And uh, you can't really tolerate any sort of risk. <laughs> yeah, that's a trick. Right. It's like the, the stakes are high. Um, and it turns out that the body is, is just a really challenging environment. Um, you know, so you have, you have pulsatile motion, you have uh, pressure loads acting on things, um, you have corrosion that could potentially take place. It's just really aggressive. And if you had a device that was like really robust, you know, like it was kind of like 
over-designed to, to, the, to the user need. Um, you'd probably be asked to like slim it down, make it smaller or you know, make it leaner or make it cheaper. So you're always sort of like pushing the envelope. Um, even if you think you have like a nice, robust, reliable design, you know, there's always a next generation that's gonna be smaller. And then like, how do you get the same reliability of something that's you know, smaller or cheaper or whatever the case may be? Um, or you know, the, same, the same performance in maybe a different indication. So oftentimes you have like devices that work well for a certain vessel size, but then what happens if you try to take them into larger vessels or different parts of the body could be very different. Um, so trying to understand what that reliability is when you only have a limited set of data um, or, and you can't run them out to 10 years or 15 years, like you were saying, you mm -hmm. know, so that's, that's a lot of my job is trying to understand that risk and, um, you know, not get caught off guard. Yeah. I, I love that you said, um, you know, something that blurb about reliability because, you know, these, these implants, right. It's not just the quality of the device, but also the reliability, the long, you know, quality over time that, that really yeah. matters. Right. And this is where, um, essentially working with data comes into play. I imagine that you work with data all the time in designing and developing these, these, um, these devices and uh, testing these devices. Right. So, so um, yeah. piggy, piggybacking off of that, like, could you tell us about like how you work with data in your job and how this whole getting into Bayesian type of statistics uh, came about? For yeah, you. So, so data is kind of the, the currency that, that we use for every transaction. It's, it's involved, you know, on the design side, you think about like all the different features of the implant that you might tweak in order to um, try to understand different performance attributes. Uh, it's involved with the, the manufacturing side of things. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you, as you change different inputs, you know, how, how do the outputs change and how can you model those relationships? Um, it's also involved with uh, things kind of on the, the risk management side, the, the user needs side and requirements side. And you have a whole other set of data related to like, um, you know, project goals and timelines and critical paths and, um, you know, things that are sort of meta to the design, um, but, but are still important. So in each of those things, you're usually, you have some data that may or may not be trustworthy and you're just, you're trying to make sense of it, right? And, and you see really smart people um, get confused by, by, by data. They, they, sometimes people run an experiment and they, they show the results and everyone just kind of says, okay, well, like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, you know, so try, trying to, as my career has gone on, I've, I think early on, I, I did understand like the importance of, of how we present and process data. So I remember like at my, um, my second job, TriVascular, where I was a test engineer, um, we would have like a, a once a week meeting where we kind of Get together with some of the higher ups in R&D, like like director or um, or even VP level, and just talk through progress of different tests. And um, I, at the time, I was just using Excel and PowerPoint, but but I it was easy to understand that like the way you present that data is critical to how people understand it. And the way that I guess one one of the key skills is kind of thinking through like okay, I'm going to present some data. Um, you know, what are some of the questions that might be asked of me? Um, you know, with, with respect to this data. So, you know, if you have, if you have one point that's, that's off, off on its own, you're probably going to be asked like, what happened with that point? You know, if you're the person that owns the test or the process, right? Um, so, you know, as you present that data, you might have like an annotation that shows like, hey, we think this was a test artifact because one of the technicians, you know, mishandled this part or something. Um, so kind of, I think I understood early on the importance of how you present and analyze data and, and the decisions that get made from that data. Um, but, but it was later on that I really started to kind of grasp how you could use statistics to kind of help you say something about what you've done. Um, and also how statistics could be kind of uh, bungled a little bit. Like, uh, you know, if you try to use it as just a, a simple algorithm for making a decision, that's probably not the best use of it and you can easily get tricked. Um, so that's something I still try to think about in my day-to-day -day these days is, you know, anytime I'm setting up an experiment or trying to present design data or performance data, you know, how can I present it in a way that is easy for the user to understand? And if, if there's questions that, that are obvious from the data set and the way that I'm gonna present it, then how could I potentially get ahead of that um, using clever data viz techniques or annotations or just commentary um, so that people don't have to be staring at it wondering, you know, what, well, what does this mean? 
well, what about mm -hmm. this point here? Where, where is this data set from? What about the difference between these two subsets? Things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And uh, in you know working with data and, and statistics a lot in, in my work and also being in, in medical device, in the medical device industry, I find that this whole working with data and statistics is really a two-edged sword, right? Yeah. You have to be you have to be good at it, explaining, kind of like telling the story, right? Mm -hmm. But because there's there are all these requirements for from you know from our regulatory bodies, right? right. At times you also you also have to like justify things like why you did what you did and why that was okay, right? Right. And the challenge with that or where it can get dangerous is when people instead of like doing the right thing, they don't always do necessarily do the right thing. Instead, they try to justify their way out of a tricky situation, right? Have you, have you right. ever seen that happen? I have seen that. Um, yeah, you, you, I think you run into that problem a lot when you're, again, when you're trying to use statistics as the only basis for making a decision, um, you sort of lose track of any domain knowledge that you have or any other information that might feed into the analysis. Um, but yeah, you'll see that a lot with like, um, and this is maybe a nice lead into kind of some of the discussions that we're gonna have up here in, in the future. But, um, you know, if you're trying to use sort of like t-tests to, to understand like equivalence between two groups, which is like obviously not the way you're supposed to do them. But even if you're even if you're trying to use like simple tests like that to, to try to say two groups are different, that still is fraught with challenges because like how different is different. Um, you know that if your sample size goes up to some large number, you're always going to see some little difference, and it's going to be significant. Um, so it's not it's not really a good tool for just making decisions in like an algorithmic fashion, right? You still have to have some understanding of like the assumptions of your models and um, you know any other information that might play into the decision that's coming from outside the data set. Um, but a lot of times in med advice, because it's so proceduralized, um, and because statistics is challenging and not always taught that well, you get um, you know, people trying to make decisions off of uh, sort of standardized procedures that may or may not apply. Uh, so yeah, I do see that a lot. Yeah, and yeah, essentially I always say statistics, of course, statistics is a science, but mm -hmm. it's just as much an art as it is a science, right? Right. Because there are yeah. no, you know, it's not really black or black and white, black or white. No, no I think it, it's easy to fall into the trap of like, hey, the data speaks for itself. And like, you can't argue with the statistics. Like, it's just right there in front of you. But like, I've kind of, I kind of come to understand that um, like there is no completely impartial statistics. There, there's always assumptions baked in. Um, and, you know, you, you can't just sit there and say like, oh, well, it's not me. It's, it's that's what the data shows. Like, uh, you know, every every inference that you make or decision that you make um, you know, it has some subjectivity to it. So, you know, different statistical methods will kind of, um, I guess, emphasize that or de-emphasize it or kind of hide it in the corner. So you think you're making like a completely impartial decision, uh, but mm -hmm. you never really are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, what other, you know, what are some of the other challenges that you have seen or have faced uh, in terms of these traditional or frequentist statistical yeah. methods, uh, specifically in med device? Yeah, so a lot of times in med device, it's the interesting thing about med device is you're sort of, you're not really interested in like a single parameter. So like if you think about like fitting a, a normal distribution to, to like some, maybe some population of data, um, like you don't really care that much about the mean usually, what you usually care about is like the whole, the whole population. Um, and kind of like the uncertainty with any particular uh, inference or estimate that you make. So it turns out that um, a lot of these methods, they might work okay for like the very simplest problem. And you could like, you can, you can find the mean and you can put a confidence interval on that. And that tells you something about the uncertainty. But as soon as you start to extend those methods to like more parameters or multiple distributions at the same time, mm -hmm. you, you get into like a really awkward spot. So um, e even like the most simple one that we use all the time, like in design and testing, we're, we're always building these things called tolerance intervals. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, by the time you get to those, like I don't know almost any engineer that, that could sort of like derive that or, or kind of you know, really walk you through like 
well, how do you get to the formula for a tolerance interval? Um, some of them can tell you that how do you how do you get a confidence interval for like a single parameter, like the mean, you know, it's like, you know, plus or minus 1.96 would give you a 95%, blah, blah, blah. But like by the time you get two parameters involved, so now you have like a mean and a standard deviation involved in trying to understand the tolerance interval, it gets very confusing. Um, and imagine trying to now take like two different populations that each have um, a mean and a standard deviation, and you're trying to understand something about maybe those distributions overlap or, or you know, something about, or maybe trying to multiply them together. Mm -hmm. uh, now all of a sudden, nobody really knows how to like propagate that uncertainty through that system uh, to give you sort of like a final estimate with all the uncertainty propagated through. So that's kind of where I see like the main advantage of Bayesian techniques and how I've used them in my day-to-day -day job when I do, which isn't all that often, but occasionally I do, um, is that kind of the output from a Bayesian model is just basically a list of credible parameter values. So rather than say like, here's the mean or the confidence interval around it, it just gives you a whole bunch of credible means and eat all of them equally valid. So then you can take that list, which already captures the uncertainty. And it also gives you like a set of standard deviations that go with it. So it's a joint probability distribution of, mm -hmm. of standard deviation. And you can do anything you want with that. You can, um, you know, you, you can simulate from it to, to get the actual like simulated population from which it, you know, from which it represents, or you can, you can do that twice with, you know, two different distributions and then multiply them together or think about the differences. And whenever you're doing one of those um, like uh, combination type of uh, analyses, the uncertainty in those estimates is like automatically propagated through. So you don't really have to think about like, okay, I'm doing two 95% confidence intervals and I'm trying to do something different with them. So do I actually need to like make those more tight, more stringent in order to like keep my alpha level at some arbitrary value? Like that, that whole discussion just like goes out the window. Um, most people don't even have that discussion because they don't, they don't really know how to sort of like combine different, different confidence statements across like a, a more complicated system. But um, with when I'm trying to understand, you know, different combinations of things or risk or whatever, um, it's nice to be able to make make an inference about some some data set and then propagate the uncertainty throughout any additional calculations that I want to do. So that's that's the main reason why I use it. Um, the, the secondary reason, of course, that people talk a lot more about is like the priors. So, yeah. um, you know, a piece of that analysis would be assigning prior probabilities to each of those parameter estimates. Um, but I don't, I honestly don't think that's in, in my field as big of a deal as people make it. Like, mm -hmm. it's very easy to sort of just assign um, flat, flat priors to these simple models, meaning, meaning basically that like, you're not going to put a penalty on any particular data value that you see. It's like, we're kind of treating them all equally. Um, or a lot of times what I'll do is like, just put a very flat, uh, a very flat prior that's sort of just informed by the scale of the data. So, you know, like, like if you're doing a tensile test and, and the load cell is like 200 Newtons or something, well, if you see a value that's like 300, 350, like you, you know, something is weird, right? So like, you're gonna use your domain knowledge anyways. <laughs> so you, you can just encode that into the model if you want to by saying like, Hey, I, I think any values above 200 on this tensile test are going to be extremely unlikely. Like something very weird is happening. Um, so that that's all I try to do with my models is just kind of inform the priors by the scale of the data, and and that's basically just saying like, well, I'm not going to as long as it's within this range, I'm not really going to penalize any particular data point. I'm just going to kind of take it at face value. But of course, like in other domains, you might. Um, you know, based on maybe you've done some experiments in the past, so you expect the values to be in some like more precise range. You can sort of customize your analysis to to that purpose. Um, but a lot of times I don't do that. I just keep keep it pretty vague. Um, so the priors thing is not as big a deal as I think people make it out to be. Or mm -hmm. at least there's ways to set up your analysis so that it's not going to be very sensitive to things like that. Okay. One of the areas that I think you know. Uh... Bayesian type of statistics and assessments could be useful is uh, risk assessment, assessment in med device, right? So we have, you know, we have the standard, the ISO, what is that, 14971, right? And we have these, for those of, uh, those of you not, you know, currently in, like, who don't work in med device, we have this, this uh, risk assessment, risk management standard uh, that, every med device company um, 
must follow, right? And um, there are certain requirements around how to calculate risk. Uh, and there's this whole P1 and P2, um, which apparently it's not really a requirement. It's a re recommendation, but mm -hmm. uh, almost all the med device companies I have seen or worked with, they all use these P1s and P2s, right? P2 is, what is that? The probability of occurrence of a hazardous event or something like that, right? And then the P2 yeah. would be the, the probability of actual patient harm occurring, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. And I mean, there's different, there's different flavors of how you define the P's. So it's probably not really worth like, you know, saying this is the formal definition, but, but the general idea is that, you know, if, if, if two things need to happen together um, and, and you're interested in sort of the probability of two things happening together, then you have to multiply those two probabilities together. Um, so the, the way that we typically do that, like in risk documents that I've seen, or a lot of them in industry, not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not speaking as a representative of Medtronic, I'm just saying in general over the course of, you know, several companies in several years, uh, it's usually just a point estimate that that's multiplied together. So if you, if you want to try to understand the risk of a harm coming from a hazardous situation or however you want to define it, um, you know that like the hazardous situation has to occur and then it has to result in a harm. So there's two different probabilities that you care about and how you represent those probabilities is kind of up to you, right? So you, mm -hmm. you could have a single point estimate for each one. So it's, if it's 90% that, that a hazardous situation occurs and then 90% probability that that turns into a harm, um, then you just multiply those two point estimates together and that tells you something about the probability of both things happening. Um, but that doesn't give you any uncertainty. So yeah. the question like, let's say I wanted like a range or a distribution of probabilities on each of those things based on maybe data I have from a predicate device or benchtop testing that I've done or FEA type stuff. Um, well, now you can represent each of those probabilities as a distribution and then uh, find ways to multiply those distributions together to propagate that uncertainty to your final risk estimate. And that's very hard to do. Um, I haven't, well, it's not very hard to do if you're using Bayesian methods, but but it is hard to do if you're just doing, um, you know, traditional frequentist stuff with confidence intervals because you'd have oh, to put. Oh, that's a, really complicated. It's just it's, yeah. it's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would I wouldn't know how to do it, which is probably why people don't do it. Um, or you know, there's people smarter than me that could probably do it, but uh, I wouldn't know how to go about it. So, um, yeah. Anyways, th those are some nice advantages. Is like that's a case where you have two distributions, you want to multiply them together. Um, so there's ways to fit those distributions off of data that you have or just describe them um, based on domain knowledge and then execute the calculations that way. In which case, at the end of the day, you have now a distribution of what you think is the most credible values for um, the probability of harm occurring. And that's what you would rather have to make a decision, right? Versus just a single point estimate. Because if you have values that run from like 1% chance of happening to you know, one in a million chance of happening, uh, well, you know, that's a full range and, and management might, might not be comfortable with something that's nudging up close to 1%, right? Um, yeah. But if, if they only see a point estimate and it's one out of 500,000 or whatever, then I'd be like, oh, it's never, there, there's no possible chance of that happening, but it doesn't really, you haven't really represented the uncertainty in what you're saying. Um, so is that scalable to like all risk management documents? Probably not, but is it like for, for key decisions, if you own a particular workflow, like why not, why not get, the most that you can out of whatever you're trying to decide, right? And yeah. make the best decision that you can. So these are things like where it might make sense to try to think about, like in your own personal workflows, for the decisions that you make, like, you know, how, how would you maybe um, try to understand that uncertainty a little bit better so you can make a better decision? Um, I'm not saying it has to go into every single risk management spreadsheet you ever do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It's really, it's really for, you know, to support your decision-making process, right? Right. Where, you know, you have those critical decisions, right? You just can't, yeah. you know, you can't miss, you can't mess it up. Yeah. And we talk a lot about, I mean, we talked about this in the past, but like tr tricky situations arise when you're looking at differences between two groups. Um, so maybe, maybe it's like a predicate product and your next generation product or maybe like you think your process might have shifted and you're trying to understand like, hey, is that a real shift or was it just like noise? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, doing kind of like traditional frequentist stuff, 
you, you can get into trouble like in terms of decision making because you can get in these spots where like like you'll come to understand that if you're trying to say something's equivalent you have to set up some sort of uh, representation of what you would consider practically equivalent so, like a lot of a lot of times that's called like a rope like a region of practical equivalence because you know it's not going to be exactly zero difference between these groups um, so you set up some region that you say like well hey as long as in the frequentist case you say like as long as the comp the full confidence interval for the difference in means is like in this in this rope region i'm going to call them equivalent right but then when it comes to like decision making you can get in these situations where like the entire confidence interval for the difference might be within that rope but it's also excluding zero so like if you were to run like a tr traditional t-test your answer would be like they're they're different right but if you use like the the rope technique now you're saying they're the same so like how do you make a decision off that it's like it's the same data it's like you know two different ways to approach the problem like how do you make a decision so there's just tricky situations like that where um you know there's some traditional techniques that will sort of get you a little bit confused if you're trying to make decisions off them or just use them as kind of like you know ignorant decision tools and not kind of think through like well what is the problem I'm actually trying to solve and uh how, how could I possibly represent that uncertainty in a different way or maybe even just frame the problem in a different perspective um, so that I can actually answer the question I care about not just some arbitrary question that the the test is testing for damn I love that okay <laughs> So, um, okay, we've talked about a couple, you know, potential uses or that, mm -hmm. you know, you've encountered actually, you know, where you've used these uh, Bayesian types of, you know, statistics. Any other uses that uh, come to mind? I mean, they're all kind of just, just cousins of the same idea, but uh, I, on my blog, I've looked at a couple of cases where like, um, you know, for attribute tests, the parameter that you usually care about is like the probability of an event occurring because you have like a binary outcome, right? So it's the same type of techniques, but um, like one of the things I wanted to understand was based on some data that you have at like the early development phases. So say like phase one or phase two or whatever you want to call it, like before you get to like the formal validation process, um, you usually have some set of data. And I wanted to understand like for an attribute test, how, how much certainty can you have like in the in the in the probability of an event occurring, which is basically the reliability of a product, right? Um, so, one way to do that is to take your data, estimate a, cre a credible set of, of probabilities for an event occurring, and then just run simulations. So, uh, if, if you know that you're going to test, like, say, like 59 or something for for your eventual verification, then you, you can figure out like what is the cre the credible set of of reliabilities, then simulate 59 like from each of those according to their weight. And try to understand like well how often would i actually fail dv uh, because a lot of times we get a false sense of confidence like if you if you test 10 in early product development and they all pass you're like oh i'm, I'm good to go like well, let's go straight to dv and uh you know all of a sudden you have an expensive round of testing it's very high risk and you fail and you're like wait we, we passed all 10 of our uh, you know our trial runs like what happened here and the answer is that well there's still a whole lot of reliabilities that aren't that high that are still credible and you might have just got 10 successes in a row off of something that's 80% reliable or yeah. uh, or 75% reliable like that's totally realistic Abs um, absolutely yeah. i see it happen all the time because yeah. typically we work with small sample sizes right exactly you, you yeah. can't afford to to make say thousands of devices of this experimental uh, process or, or device right so yeah. that's just kind of like an artifact of my device class three i would say it is yeah and i mean the answer is that you bring other things to that assessment besides the 10 data points from early phase work right mm -hmm. you, you usually have like predictive modeling whether it's like fda or something or cfd or something else um you, you might have a first principles engineering understanding of what's going on you yes. might have some idea based on like how often your competitor fails uh you know how how serious or how severe this test might be um so there's a lot of different things that you feed into that analysis that aren't actually captured in kind of the the i guess say like simplistic analysis of just using the predicate data from early phase development but it's still um it just goes to show like um you know if you don't sort of consider those other things it's actually like you shouldn't have that much confidence going into a subsequent 
high risk round of testing uh, just based on a handful of data collected. So there's, there's other things, you, there's tricks you can do. You can test at extreme uh, boundary conditions. You can mm-hmm. uh, do different, I mean, these, these are all accelerated tests, so you can't really accelerate them, but, um, mm-hmm. but you can test at ch- more challenging stresses or temperatures than you actually think it would see in service. So there's different ways to kind of, I guess, like burn down that risk. But um, at the end of the day, it still is nice to kind of look at your data and say, okay, based on this data and a couple of the things that I know, like what do I think is the risk of, of us failing DV or, or some other critical round of testing? Um, and I never had those tools before, but um, you know, after working for a while with, with R and you know, the, the different uh, packages and abilities that that gives you, uh, it makes it fairly straightforward to kind of calculate those uncertainties and really try to understand them. So, that, so a lot of times in my blog, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing is just like asking these questions that I never would have been able to ask before. Um, just because I'm curious. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I never really had the tools or the, the understanding to really ask them or answer them. Um, but now I do. And it's fun to kind of just probe, like, what, what are all these assumptions that we're making in our day-to-day life, even though that situation might not be, like, realistic or applicable to my, my life that month. But um, I still want to ask them just because I'm curious. And it, it's interesting to kind of get those answers and try to understand, like, well, how would I, how would I visualize them? Um, or, or how would I use that? those methods for other extensions. Okay. Yeah. So you haven't, you have a blog. We haven't talked about that, but we'll actually talk a little more about it, uh, you know, as we go, but uh, I've, I've read almost all, all of your posts. They're, Thank you. They're, they're really, really informative. Uh, so, and, and you, and this is where we're getting into your tech, right? So what kind of tools do you use to to do these calculations, Bayesian types of statistics, right? You mentioned R, is that your primary tool? It is, yeah. So I, I taught myself R in, in a similar way that you did, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah this, this would have been like three or four years ago. And I just wanted, at the time, I just wanted to code and I was kind of interested in data science and machine learning. And I knew that that was the tool that I, or the skills that I needed in order to kind of explore that domain. So I taught myself, um, and what I didn't really understand was that it was also going to be the tool for me to, to answer or ask all these questions about traditional stats that I had never had the right tools to answer or ask. Um, so that was kind of a bonus. But but the original motivation was like, you know, how do I kind of understand these fancy data science algorithms? Yeah. And uh, eventually, I thought I would kind of explore more like machine learning and deep learning, which I have. But but I sort of got um, sidetracked by just all these interesting um, things that I that I've explored like along the way. Um, that's that's our, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You, you start here and then you never know where your journey, uh, you know, will take you. Right. Right. And I'm still kind of on that path of trying to like, that's one thing I like about it is that there's just so many little subdomains that you can, you can park yourself in a while uh, in for a while. I mean, even just like, you know, linear models, whether it's like simple linear regressions or like GLMs, like generalized linear models, um, that's just a whole, like I thought that was just like a stop on the way, but that's like a whole package of work and understanding that. Um, and then within that package, there's like traditional frequentist methods or Bayesian techniques, because it's the same inference that you're trying to make. It's just different frameworks. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's like all these things that, that you can easily get sidetracked, but that's what I like is that um, if you get bored or you get frustrated or whatever, uh, or you get stuck or you hit a ceiling, um, you can just pivot into like some other little subdomain to start working on like data visualization. There's like so much to learn there on like, how do I present different data or, um, or Bayesian techniques or, um, or you could do like time series or just like you're, you're building apps as I understand. So there's like, there's that whole side of it is like using these same tools to like develop little apps for yourself. Uh, there's yeah. just like so much fun stuff that you can do <laughs> is that like, it's a, I don't know. I, I really enjoy just kind of playing with the tools but the original motivation was like, um, you know, how can I, how can I get into data science? So, so obviously R and Python are kind of like the, your main your main toolkits. Um, I chose R because it's more like statistics focused and the data mm-hmm. viz is probably a little bit better. Um, but uh, it turns out that I just really like the language, um, at least the modern version of the language. And um, tidyverse, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, I'm not I'm not a computer scientist, so I don't have all that history of like working through several different languages going back to you know C or whatever it was. Um, so for me, it's very helpful to have like human readable code, you know, like 
so like if you look at some code, it's not it's like so complex that you can't really understand what's going on. Um, so I love just the way that like modern R with the tidyverse, it just it's almost like you're reading a sentence. It's like you do this, then you do this, then you then you filter, then you select, then you and with just like five or six different verbs or five or six different functions, you can get so much done. It's just it's really amazing. So um, yeah, R is my main tool. Back to the original question, uh, and then to do anything Bayesian, I use a package called BRMS. Okay. Bayesian regression model, and that would be probably the only one that I could really handle because what that what that package is is actually like it's like a higher level API um, because a lot of these Bayesian techniques uh, you, you have to do something called Monte Carlo um, or MCMC Markov mm -hmm. chain Monte Carlo sampling um, to, to get that that list of parameters that I was talking about that it spits out at you um, and a lot of a lot of people that do this for a living or like are much better than me would use a, a program called Stan. Which is like almost like a separate language that that does kind of that Bayesian backend. Mm -hmm. um, but there's this thing called BRMS, which is a very simple like high-level API that lets you just plug in a couple things, um, and then it it converts it all to stand on the backend like under the hood, so you don't have to worry about that piece of it. Um, and then it gives you back out your you know your list of of parameters that you care about. Uh, so that makes like I would probably wouldn't be able to do Bayesian stuff without those tools. Um, so I'm thankful to the the open source community for continuing to develop those and make them freely available. And there's just so much like that in R that, oh um, yeah, you know, whatever you can think of, somebody's probably done it. And you don't have to sort of design something from scratch. It's like you can, and you don't even have to use like the most cutting edge stuff. You can use stuff that's like, you know, a couple years old or three years old, and it's going to handle like almost every problem you come up with. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been great to really learn R and kind of become competent because you can use that just for normal data analysis and cleaning and visualization, mm -hmm. or you can use it for more complex like modeling and simulation. It's kind of like the Swiss army knife that can do whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally attest to that. Do you have any recommendations for, for engineers, say, say R&D engineers in med device, right? Interested in kind of, you know, getting into this, this same kind of stuff. Like where yeah. do you start? So I would start like, for me, it's probably better to start with the, the coding piece of it. If, if you're interested in sort of like a data science-y, um, you know, overlapping with some sort of like industrial stats type stuff, I would recommend kind of working on the tools a little bit first. So um, the, the best resource I've found for that is Matt Dancho's business science courses. That, that's where I learned, and I, I get no, um, no kickback from them, but that's where I learned uh, probably like 85% of my stuff. And it was just the perfect course at the perfect time for me. And I was able to quickly learn something that I had never done before. And that was, you know, coding in R, as well as, you know, working your way through simple models to, um, you know, different prediction al algorithms and machine learning type stuff. Um, that was really the best source for me from like a coding perspective. Mm -hmm. from, a, from a stats perspective, um, like if you want to delve into like the Bayesian stuff, I guess what I would recommend is like, I mean, it's hard because for me, I had like a couple like false starts. Like I, I sort of probed in, but I wasn't quite ready. And then I like came back and then eventually like I went kind of like a little bit deeper. Uh, but I would just re honestly recommend just like starting on YouTube. So, um, you know, just sort of like, ju just listen, you know, just open your ears and try to kind of absorb what's out there. A, a couple of different like video series that, that were really helpful to me. Uh, there's, there's one by an author named Rasmus Booth. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, I think it's called like introduction to to Bayesian data analysis or something is like that. Is that the big red book? No, this is actually just a series of, of YouTube videos. Oh, so it's not oh even, this it's is not YouTube. even a book. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm saying just start with videos. Yeah, uh, but he walks you through like some very very simple uh, use cases, like real world like use cases for for Bayesian data analysis, and helps you understand how it can be used as like a, a decision making tool. Um, and then there's another set of YouTube video lectures by by an author named Kruski. Um, I forget the first name, but John Kruski, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and he does an amazing overview of just like the differences between, like if you're doing sort of like a, a null hypothesis significance test, so like comparing two groups, um, you know, the differences between the Bayesian approach and the traditional approach and mm -hmm. all the things that can go wrong with the traditional approach. Uh, it, it's not really focused on the tools or the techniques, it's just like the principles. Um, 
So yeah. those those two video series, I think, are a great place to start and just see if you're interested. Like, is it resonating? Is it something you want to go deeper on? And then if you choose to go deeper and you think you might have like some some modest coding skills, uh, then I mean, the one that people always recommend is Statistical Rethinking by um, uh, oh gosh, McElreath. I'm blanking on the name. Oh, that's uh, the big red book, right? That's the big that's the big red okay. one. Yeah, and um, he, he's actually. What I like about these these books and these authors is that they're not um, they're not statisticians primarily. Like they they all work in domains like we do, where they're trying to solve questions. So I think McElreath is like a anthropologist or something like that, yeah. and uh, and Kresge's like a psychologist. So they're answering questions about like experiments that they would set up or data that they have for their domain, where they're just trying to make sense of it. And that's all we're trying to do is like you know we have domain we have data from our domain that we're trying to understand. Um, yeah. So it's see people that are just like applying these tools versus just like statisticians that are just like all in the theory for no reason. Um, so those are resources that I like. Um, is, is that enough or do you want more? <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's enough for me. <laughs> I hope it's enough for, uh, for the audience. I think it's a good amount of information, but uh, I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, to make a mention of all these resources in the, uh, uh, the episode notes. Okay. Yeah, for you, Gabor, though, you, you've learned a lot in the last year, two years, like what, what is the best tools or what are the best tools that you've found and how, because I'm just one person, everybody learns different. So yeah, so yeah. I, I can, I can also highly recommend Matt Dancho's courses. I've taken those courses and they're honestly the best, um, best, best in class courses, uh, especially for, for beginners or mm -hmm. someone that just starting out. They don't have any prior experience. And, you know, let me tell you, those courses will get you up to speed in no time, right? Yeah. There are some, some other stuff out there. Uh, there's a lot of free stuff in terms of programming. As far as, as, far as statistics, uh, I mean, I've always been interested in statistics, right? Mostly industrial, lately, uh, lately you know, algorithms and stuff. And one of the, the textbooks I've read, and I'm pretty sure you've read this, it's, it's called Introduction to Statistical Learning, that one, you know, yeah. that big yellow book. book. Yeah, yeah, so that's- Sitting that's, on my desk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good one. There's actually another book that I've recently read. It's not a textbook per se, it's called um, The Art of Statistics. Hmm. It's uh, by this British uh, statistician, David Spiegelhalter. I'm you know, I think it. I read that on audiobook. It's yeah. uh, it's really good. Yeah, it's really, really good. And it's yeah. what makes it so good. And even like, you know, easy for beginners to understand is that there's not a not a lot of statistical, you know, terms that, you know, um, you know, those of those people who are not well-versed in statistics wouldn't really understand. So yeah. I highly recommend that book as well. Uh, and, you know, find your own journey, go on YouTube and uh, yeah. look up some stuff. I know uh, there's this channel called StatQuest, Josh Starmer, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing I appreciate about Matt Dancho's course is that yeah. Like when it, when it did come to sort of like the more complex stats, because he's not a statistician, right? He's a yeah. He's an engineer turned uh, data science. Exactly. Structure. That's why we can relate. Yeah, to so he's not going to know like the the nitty gritty of every single like machine learning algorithm, uh, but he knows enough that like if if he wants to point you to a resource, you know, he points you to StatQuest, and that's like yeah. the best place to learn if if you really care about like the nitty gritty of a machine learning algorithm and what's happening under the hood when you when you tell it to run like StatQuest is, is unbeatable um it's it's the best and so it's, it's all visual yeah. like it's all visualized right and it's it's simple it's it's not it's like, like they, they treat you yeah. as they treat you as a smart person but they don't just overwhelm you with jargon like it's, it's not a, like an ego trip for for josh to kind of like blow you away with his knowledge it's more just like you know treat it treat it very simple um you know give very simple examples go through slowly explain some things that that would normally be like assumed that people know just go ahead and explain them who cares like it takes 10 seconds and i, I love that he does that on his uh, on his videos yeah i think um he just uh recently announced that he'll actually be making full-blown courses oh really yeah so really uh excited to see uh 
you know, to see those courses, maybe even take them. Well, he'll be great. I mean, he's, he's a college professor uh, yeah. before he was doing the videos full time. So he knows how to teach a class. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, there, there are a lot of podcasts, um, you know, that specialize in, in this kind of stuff, whether mm -hmm. it's data science. Uh, I haven't seen a podcast that, that specializes in, in, um, you know, data science, like applications for say mechanical or R&D engineers, but maybe there's something out there. Uh, I'm trying to change that with this episode. So we'll see, yeah. where, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, there isn't, I'm, I'm not really aware of one. And that's, I mean, that's one thing that's like notable about medical device, at least in like the corner that we're in where it's like, you know, class three implant implantables with, um, you know, not like, not hardware software type devices, but they're more like, you know, functional, whether it's valves or stents or some other type of device is that like you, you often, it, it seems like the, the techniques that come into our domain are just like a hodgepodge, like, like grab from the auto industry or grab from like the aerospace industry. They don't really have any like cohesive like framework. And that's probably why you don't hear like podcasts and stuff about medical device engineers or mechanical engineers sort of, you know, working through data science type applications. Um, so yeah, that's one thing I've tried to do a little bit, um, you know, you're, you're doing a little bit, but the fun thing is that you can just borrow these techniques from other domains where, where they work well, like, you know, this is being applied to finance, it's being applied to like online consumerism and like predictions of click-throughs and things like that. Like, why can't we predict stuff? Well, we can, I mean, usually our data sets are smaller, um, but yeah. the, the same techniques apply. It's just, um, you know, who's going to use it, who's going to do it. So, uh, yeah. you know, there are, there are some people trying, and I think that's probably the future is like, you know, more people applying modern tools to these problems in this old industry. Um, and hopefully yeah. we get better outcomes with patients. Oh, absolutely. I, I do see, I, I, I too um, see this as kind of like a grassroots type of uh, movement, right? Mm -hmm. Where there are individuals who are interested in kind of pushing the boundaries of what's you know, what's possible within a domain, say medical device product development yeah. or within quality. And uh, kind of like, you know, those individuals uh, form a community and uh, break some break some things. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why it's been nice to, to meet you and talk to you a little bit, Gabor, because uh, I think we're, we're like-minded in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, it's just fun to explore and talk about it with other people. Oh, abs absolutely. Uh, this this is this is super fun. Let me tell you. <laughs> right before we wrap up, um, I usually have this you know short session where I ask a couple of random questions, right? Uh, the kind of like probing questions. Um, uh, so let me let me ask you this: What is what's a what's a book that you recently read? and would recommend reading? Not necessarily related to R&D or data science, just something that you would recommend to others. Yeah, well, I guess like in, in the kind of nonfiction category, one of the ones that I read, this, this would be like a few months back, but um, Deep Work, I forget the name of the author, but uh, that, that had a big impact on me, um, mm -hmm. especially kind of in our modern world where there's so much stimulation. And, um, you know, I, I, have, I have young kids, so a lot of my, my bandwidth is taken up by trying to chase after them and go to drama and softball oh, practice and all this stuff. Um, so just kind of thinking a little bit more carefully about kind of how I approach my technical work, you know, whether that's like blocking off time, um, turning off the instant messengers, turning off the cell phone, um, and kind of really trying to understand like the history of like how we got to where we are. Um, and, you know, there's, there's not really a lot of data on kind of like open office uh, layouts where it's like, hey, should we really be in like an open office layout where anybody can like stop by your desk anytime? Um, well, that's probably not the best if you're like, if you're really trying to like lock in and go deep on something technical, which you have to do in coding sometimes, um, that's not the right environment. So, uh, you know, you're much better off like sequestering yourself away for, um, you know, a couple hours at a minimum. Um, and every single time you get distracted, you have to like, you know, refocus and that's, that's not easy. So um, that, that book was a big wake up call for me. And uh, I've tried to kind of incorporate 
some of the learnings from that book. And so definitely recommend it. I'm sorry, I can't remember the author right now. Oh, we'll look it up. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, there's this technique that I've recently uh, uh, come across. It's called the, the Pomodoro technique. Have you heard? That? That's the, ti the timer one, right? It's yeah, the timer timing. one. And yeah. I've actually, yeah, I've been, I've been applying it to my work and to my, some of my personal stuff. You know, the idea is that um, you have these chunks of focused, you know, time intervals, say 25 mm -hmm. to 30 minutes where you only focus on that one task or activity or whether it's, you know, it's sending a couple of emails, you know, coding, mm -hmm. um, you know, creating a report or whatnot, you block your time out and you get rid of all, like any distraction that yeah. could, you know, hinder you from completing that task or working on that task and you just get it done. And mm -hmm. it's very simple, but I think without that discipline, it's hard to achieve because of all these distractions around you. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's where the timer helps you. But um, yeah, I think it's the same idea. It's sort of like, um, you know, can you set aside, it seems so simple, right? It's like set aside dedicated time to focus. But but the idea is that this is a skill that not that many people have now. So it's, it's kind of like yeah. a skill people perhaps used to have a bit more. And just because of modern technology and the, the, connect, the you know connectedness of everybody, uh, you don't see, it's not every person or candidate that can actually sit down and work on something really technical for like two hours. It's like a skill that you have to build. Yeah. Um, or even just, uh, you know, whether, whether the timer that you're using, whether it's like 20 minutes or 40 minutes, like that still is hard. Like you'll find yourself like, where's my phone? Or like, you know, where's, where's my water? Or uh, it's just so easy to get distracted. So uh, it's, yeah, it's something that is hard for anybody to do, but it's a skill that you learn. And uh, yeah, tool, tools can help. So whether it's like a timer or even just like, like I just block time on my calendar, uh, even if, you know, I don't have a meeting there, but it's like, you know, here's a two hour block where I'm going to work on a particular project and I'm not going to be distracted. Or like when I was learning with Matt Dancho's course, I was pretty much every single night I was going to the coffee shop and I would just, uh, you know, put on the headphones and not be distracted for, you know, an no, hour and a half yeah. or whatever. So that was like so helpful for trying to learn something because uh, yeah, every time you're distracted, you have to reorient yourself to what you're trying to do. And it's just, um, it's just a bad habit to get your brain into. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, listen to Riley. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, being in, in, in med device, where do you see the future of medical device and development and medical device technology going in the next, say, five years? Yeah, well, I guess in my little corner of med device, uh, I think we're going to get to a place where we have better analytical models in, to kind of understand or, or predict the performance of our products before they go into people. Uh, we already do have, you know, FEA and CFD and some, I guess, more traditional methods. But um, in terms of like how we understand like the boundary conditions. So mm -hmm. if you think of like a blood vessel, that'd be like, you know, what is the pressure in there? Like, how much is it moving? Uh, you know, what is the angulation? Things like that. Um, we still don't have really good models, whether that's, um, you know, analytical models that you'd run on a computer or even benchtop models. Like, it's very, it's very hard to model, you know, to, to, to make a simulated portion of the body that's going to load your, your device in exactly the same way as, um, as the body does. So I think there's progress being made there in terms of, like, like if you look at, uh, this is more like R&D centric, I know, but there's kind of like in, in silico trials that people are starting to run where it's like you, you can sort of simulate a patient population and, and in theory run a whole like clinical trial uh, just on the computer. So by simulating a bunch of patients and then having good confidence that your your model of your implant will um, you know behave as, as expected and be challenged appropriately in sort of like a computerized model, then uh, you might have, you might not have to do as much uh, actual like clinical trials in humans um, or, or animal studies. So that has a lot of advantages. Um, I know that's more like R&D centric. Yeah. All, all these things are sort of like data-driven analytical approaches where it's all under the umbrella of like predictive engineering. So I think we'll, they'll continue on that. But, um, but I also, I have to be honest, like I also see people like getting burned a lot. Like people are gonna continue to use these techniques because they don't know anything else. 
Um, they're going to make decisions off of weird, weird data without understanding, you know, uncertainty and not informing, not informing their decision with domain knowledge. Um, so you will still see stuff. You're still going to see stuff go sideways, um, and you know, it just takes a long time to sort of change the direction of that ocean liner. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 very helpful. Actually, I'm seeing the same trend. So I guess. Uh, that's something that uh, is bound to happen. Yeah, not surprising. <laughs> okay. Um, as a last question, so what gets you excited and out of bed every day? Um, well, my, my family first and foremost. I yeah. Mean, uh, just watching my kids grow up. But I guess in, in the in the domain of kind of work related stuff, um, I just like solving problems. And, and as I've gotten to be like more senior um, within different organizations. I've been given a bit more autonomy to kind of use the use the tools or the approach that I see fit, and you, of course you have to build that credibility whether it's um, you know within an organization or within your peers or whatever you know wherever you're trying to solve problems. But um, you know assuming that you can build some credibility, then you get some autonomy to kind of tackle problems in different ways. Mm -hmm. And to me that's really fun. It's like like I still get a thrill out of um, I've mentioned this to other people, but like when I used to be a test engineer. Um, you know, we would be the first ones to see the data, right? So, um, you know, you run a test and sometimes, sometimes these tests take like three months, uh, you know, to run. So it's really hard to, uh, they just take a lot of effort to actually get those data points at the back end. And it's really fun to see them for the first time and try to make sense of them. Um, so I still get a thrill out of that, even though I'm doing different types of experiments now. But, um, you know, being the first one to see the data and try to make sense of it, and, you know, if you see something wonky, you know, try to understand, like, what's going on there? Was it a, like I said, is it a test artifact? Is it, is there something really exciting about this new design that, that we just didn't recognize? Or, um, you know, I, I still just, I like that problem solving and kind of really trying to understand things at like a, a deeper level. Um, and, you know, when you have, when you have problems that involve like inputs and outputs, really trying to like develop models that, that help you understand those relationships, whether it's like, causal relationships or just association associations um i don't know i just like i like trying to develop tools that help me understand data curiosity right yeah. that's all that matters great yeah. uh going back to family so you have uh how many two or three kids two daughters uh two yeah. daughters i have a daughter myself she's eight and uh yeah. so do you do you ever promote engineering or scientific thinking to them i'm starting to do it a little bit more and there's actually you know, for my seven-year-old, there's there's some really cool shows out there, like on Netflix and stuff. Whether it's like there's one called Ada Twist Scientist, and there's a there's one called Brainchild, which is like a, a live-action one. But um, yeah, I, I started kind of there with just sort of like promoting shows that are that are more like um, into learning. And then we do like projects. You know, we're getting into like she, she's starting to love Legos now, so it's like you yeah, know, build, building out the Lego structures is always really fun and. Yeah, they're still like princess sets, but um, but she still loves like designing the different rooms and like building out the castles and stuff. It's really exciting to see. Um, but yeah, we'll try different stuff. Like we we, we bought in science kits and you know made made slime or like um, you know made little chemical reactions in a test tube. Oh yeah, like that is like really fun. But it's just so fun to just like see them uh, excited about it. And um, yeah, they they like to learn. So um, you know, at an early age, they don't know that like you know they shouldn't be trying to learn something or that you know some question is like impossible <laughs> they'll just try it so it's, yeah, it's, it's great it's, it's all a game right it's just a yeah, game yeah totally yeah I've, I've recently taken things to the next level um and i i i got my uh, my daughter uh, uh a coding book oh good for you <laughs> yeah it's there's this uh programming language specifically for kids forget the name but there's a book about the language and I mean, you know what, they get to build games, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> but I was just gonna yeah. say, I'm, I'm planning on like my, my overarching plan is to kind of, um, like my daughter likes watching videos of like Minecraft and, and Roblox. So, um, you know, there, there's probably some avenue that I can explore there where it's like some simple simple coding or like design, design adaptations where, um, you know, she, she can do something that she already likes or is interested in. Yeah. And, maybe apply some like very, very simple kind of like coding or, or design type of tools. I, I think that would be really fun for her because she she loves like world building and like Minecraft and Legos and stuff like that. Yeah, just make it fun, right? Yeah, exactly. As long as you make it fun, they will be into it. Yeah, yeah. Great. 
uh, well, I think uh, that was a that was a really really uh, informative episode. Episode. Uh, I I personally learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Riley, for for uh, for being here with us and uh, essentially essentially giving us uh, you know an idea of what your job looks like uh, applying Bayesian statistics, right? I think um, we all were provided great resources uh, to get started on learning these types of statistics and even uh, getting to programming if, uh, if need be, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about your blog, right? And, and I, I do wanna uh, make sure to, uh, to, to emphasize it. So it's, it's rileyking.netlify.app, right? That's it. Uh, yeah, thank so you. Go ahead, give it a uh, give it a read. Uh, he has some really, really interesting blog posts, mostly R related, but it's all but kinds of all R related. Yeah, and I I should add that like you know I, I say this in the disclaimer, but I I try to write everything from the standpoint of like the curious student and not like the the stodgy professor. So it's it's entirely possible that if you read it, you'll see some stuff that's not quite right. <laughs> but that's sort of like in the interest of learning, right? Like I'm just, like I said before, like a lot of those questions are just stuff that I'm interested in, I'm curious about. And uh, yeah, I'm not an expert on the stuff that I write about necessarily. So, yeah. um, you know, it's more of like a learning journey, but uh, hopefully there's something there that people can, um, you know, take value from. Yeah, it's awesome that you share it with other people. So great. Okay, so how do folks get a hold of you? Uh, you can probably find me on LinkedIn or, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. Uh, that's kind of my only active social media these days um so yeah just search for riley king and uh happy to make connections or uh, chat sounds good thanks riley again that was a great chat thanks gibber that was really fun take care i appreciate you listening to the show thank you for all your support if you find these conversations valuable please spread the word on critical talks and don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you have a specific topic that you'd like to chat with me about, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and we'll get you on the show. All right, I will catch you in another episode of Critical Talks. In the meantime, stay curious and keep on learning. Okay.